I know. Do you, well, do you think they were cold? Oh, I bet they were freezing in the jail. Oh, I know. It just, oh. Morning, ladies. Morning, Sharon. Morning. Are they all right? Well, I put them in separate cells. But they yelled at each other all night long. That drove me crazy. I'm going to be glad to go fetch them for you two ladies. Oh, I tell you, I am going to throttle that fool. Oh, you and me both, after all the trouble they've oh, caused, they deserve it. So scared last night not having you oh, home. Oh, come on, yeah, calm down, boys. Good. Come on, come right now. All right, I'm going to let you both go, all right? But I want you to understand one thing. No more warnings. Understood? Good. Because if there's another ruckus like that, you're going to be spending more than a night in my jail. But Sheriff, he started it. Did not. Did so. Prove it. You prove it. All right, now, why both of you? What in the world happened between you two anyhows? Well, I'm proud to say it. I threw the first punch. <gasps> I told you he started it, but I only did it on account of what Gene did to me. I didn't do nothing to you you didn't deserve, you smelly bean farmer. Well, I, he broke down the fence around my garden plot. Took me nigh on forever to get them posts dug, and he tore them all out in one night. <gasps> Gene! Is that so? Well, maybe, but I was only doing him back. He's the one who pulled up our garden. <gasps> Charlie, say it ain't so. It's so, but it weren't nothing I didn't owe him. He's the one who painted our sheep. <gasps> you painted their sheep? Well, I found me some pretty purple paint. I didn't have nothing else to do with it. So I painted my sheep. Painted them purple. So I had to bathe them all before I could shear them. Well, you earned it. How's that? You let my cows out. Charlie, you're worse than a rotten egg. Well, I was only paying him back for what he'd done to us. That low-life traitor filled in our well. <gasps> Gene, you, you didn't. I did, but it was only to pay him back for breaking our wagon. Charlie, you didn't break his wagon, did you? Only because he broke my plow, well, I... Oh, I, I didn't break your plow, Charlie. Yes, you did. I loaned it to you, and you bringed it back broken. Well, Charlie, I'm... I certainly didn't mean to break your plow. Uh, I really didn't. You mean, uh, this was just an accident? It was an accident. Well, you know, I guess this was all just a big misunderstanding. <laughs> big misunderstanding. <laughs> Well, yeah, just one of those things, just a bit, but everything's okay now. Yeah. Sheriff? Yes, ma'am? Lock him up. Yes, ma'am. Sweetie, I can't spend another night in jail. Here, got to tell you, Listen to me, sweetie. 
boys. Home sweet home. I made Gina pie. You want some? I'd love some. Well, Charlie, oh, all this revenge stuff, boy, has really taught me a lesson. In fact, I even wrote a song about it. The lyrics are right there in your hand. All right, let's, uh, let's give her a whirl. Yeah, I'll start out and uh, you can just fill in wherever and see how it goes. All right, one, two, three, four. You can be mean to me, mean as you want to be. Just say anything that you like You can be nasty and catty and cruel and unusual Twist my nose with your fingers Trip me while I carry liquids But as you pin me down My elbow's down on the ground And your spit drips into my face Deep in the back of your mind Remember at some point You'll have to fall asleep And when you fall asleep Into your room I'll creep Did something move in the dark Neath your bed And then a voice you hear Calling out loud and clear A voice that is your own A voice that's saying There's things that one can do with Bengay Nair and super glue. A package of indelible dye. Why would a guy such as I ever buy indelible dye? Blue as the sky, don't ask me why. This catalog I found sells roaches by the pound. Millipedes, centipedes too. They say the meek shall inherit because they stay up late and change the will. And when you fall asleep into your room, I'll creep. Did something move in the dark neath your bed? And then a voice you'll hear calling out loud and clear. A voice that is your own. A voice that's saying, no! Well, that's all I got, Charlie. I'll tell you oh, what. Can... Tell you what, Gene. You sure know how to write a love song. Oh, well, thank you, Charlie. <laughs> Well, good morning. We've been talking about anger the last few weeks, and uh, I think most of us have been taught when we were kids that when we're hit with anger that we should do things like count to 10, take a deep breath, uh, cool off, chill, you know, all these expressions and sayings that we've learned through the years. And, and they're important because there's a particular aspect to the nature of anger. Remember that God made us, and even anger is something that God gave us the capacity for. And, and let me just stop for a moment and say that anger is important. 
For instance, um, we wouldn't be able to respond to the abuses of mankind if we didn't have the capacity for anger. But anger has, at, at its core, the nature of dissipating. Anger is supposed to dissipate. Many of us have had experiences where we were angry, but after a few moments, we calmed down, we thought about it, and, and we said things like, well, maybe that person's having a bad day, or, you know, I do dumb stuff too. But probably the reason why most of us chill down with anger is just that we move on to other thoughts. So we have other things going on in the day, and, you know, whatever we were angry about just kind of fell into the background. But something really bad happens when anger doesn't dissipate, when we hold on to it. it there's a sort of radioactive effect when anger stays. Um, in getting ready for this weekend's message, I watched one of my favorite movies. Um, I always loved the Clint Eastwood movies. I loved all the Dirty Harry movies and the Spaghetti Westerns. But I have a particular favorite movie of Clint Eastwood's that I watched, uh, and it's called Hang 'em High. How do you feel about your pastor liking a movie called Hang 'em High? But anyway, that's, that is just a favorite, favorite movie of mine. And uh, the, the thing about Clint Eastwood in this movie is he starts off as kind of this mild-mannered rancher and, and a vigilante group mistakenly thinks that he has killed someone and they set out to hang him. They get the rope around his neck, they string him up on a tree and he's dying and along comes the federal marshal and cuts him down and saves his life. And from that moment on, Clint Eastwood's character is hell-bent to, like, find the guys who tried to lynch him. And he wants to kill every one of them because he wants to get revenge. He, he's setting out on a vendetta. But when he gets to the town, the judge in the town um, confronts him and, and offers him a choice. And here's the choice. He can either take the badge, become a U.S. Marshal, go about it the right way, find the guys and bring them in and let justice deal with them, or he can take his gun as he intended to do and kill every one of them, at which case the judge tells him, you will swing on the end of the rope. The judge even understanding that he was an innocent victim, but he said, if you go out and try to get vengeance on your own, you will hang on the rope that you want to see somebody else hang on. That's a powerful lesson. But there's a book in the Bible that gives us a lot better lesson. And in fact, the title of the book could be called Hang Em High because a lot of people get hanged in this book. And it's a book about anger. What might surprise you is that the book is one of the two books in the Bible named after a woman. It's a great story. And my hope is that when today's talk is over, that sometime during the day or the next week, you'll take the book of Esther and you'll read it because I'm going to tell the story this morning. But if you read the book for yourself, you're going to see this thing develop a lot more than maybe I can develop it in just the next few moments. But it all starts in chapter 1 in the land of Persia about 470 years before Jesus was born. The Jews had disobeyed God and gotten themselves into trouble and the Babylonians had come and taken them away. But the Babylonian empire had crumbled and the Persians had come and taken their kingdom and the Persians were ruling at this time and there were still Jews in the land of Persia. Um, the guy who was the king was named Xerxes. He was powerful. He was smart. He had an incredibly awesome kingdom. Um, he wanted to throw a big bash to celebrate how great his kingdom was. So they decorated to the hilt. You know, I mean, it was, the, the country was perfectly coiffed. All the lawns were mowed, and it was party time, and they celebrated. And then the king wanted to have kind of a second party to bring in all of his nobles from all over his kingdom, you know, to wine them and dine them and feed them just to show how rich he was. 
And in those days, as today, I'm sure, you know, intoxicating spirits are expensive. And, and oftentimes, whenever somebody would throw a party back in Bible days, there would be sort of a drink limit because, you know, if you had thousands of people in, it would get expensive. But this king, in order to show how rich he was, put a no drink limit on the party. He just told everybody they could have as much liquor as they wanted. Some of you have been in places where there was a no drink limit enough to know that's not exactly a good idea. So when they got sufficiently drunk, I mean, and they were high out of their minds, they didn't, have, they didn't know what to do. So the king, king decided to bring his queen in because she was really something to look at. She was beautiful. And the king said, I got an idea. I'm going to bring the queen in. We can all look at how, how, how gorgeous she is. Well, when the queen got the word, she just really didn't feel up to like strutting out in front of a bunch of drunk guys. And she sent the message back to the most powerful man in the world that she wasn't coming. And, of course, the king, this is the first time we see this in the book, the king got angry. He was filled with rage. And so he, he asked what should be done. Now, how many of you have been in an environment where a lot of people were drunk? It's not a good idea to ask for advice of a lot of drunk people. And so the guy said, you saw, you know, she dished you, you just ought to, like, cut her loose, and, and, and that ought to be the deal. And so the king, drunk and angry, he just cut the queen loose, fast high. He said, you're no longer queen. You're fired. And at the end of the chapter one, this has absolutely nothing to do with the story. It's just drunk guys getting together. They passed a man law. And their man law was, this is, look, look at it. You'll see it there. The law was that any man ought to be able to say anything he wants to say in his own house. And everybody voted for it and it passed. That's the, that's the end of chapter one. But anger is meant to what? To dissipate. And so, you know, the king was kind of like sobering up and cooling down. He was feeling bad for what he did to Vashti. And he was like, like oh, man, I made a mistake. And so his brass, they got, to be, they got afraid that if he, if he let Vashti back in, that, you know, men would lose power in the kingdom. So they, they went to the king and said, okay, we need to have a Miss Persia contest. We're going to bring all the beautiful women from Persia in, the best-looking women. And you can pick your queen. You can pick the one that you want. And so they did. But what they didn't know, what all the brass didn't know was that one of the girls they picked for the beauty contest was a Jewish girl. I mean, she was hot. She must have really been something special. Her name was Hadassah, and we know her as Esther because that's the name of the book that, that, that tells the story. And, and I don't know, you know, I know absolutely nothing about cosmetics. I'm totally challenged in this area, but you read this chapter, there must have been some real strong beauty treatments in those days because half the year they just worked on cosmetics and for the next six months they worked on cosmetics and perfumes. So for 12 months, these girls prepared themselves before they would go into the presence of the king and he would pick one of them. And so finally, all this came down and, you know, the girls got prepared. They went through all their beauty treatments and when the choosing came around, the king decided Esther's the queen. Isn't that great? I mean, here's the story. I mean, it starts off so bad. It's a story of anger and drunkenness and all kinds of stuff. But in the, in the process of time, Esther, a Jewish girl, a girl who loves God, becomes the queen. But I should also tell you that bad things are happening in the kingdom. Any of you guys ever work in a place where there's a kiss up there, you know? A guy that, a gal that just doesn't have any strong skills on their own, but they just like kiss up to the powers that be so they'll get promoted and kind of rise to the ranks. 
Well, there's a guy named Haman. He worked for the king. He was what they called a noble. And he was like a, among a big bunch. But he just knew, you know, he knew who to flatter. He knew who to kiss up to. And eventually, you know, the king just kept promoting this guy, Haman, until finally Haman was like all, he was over all the other nobles. He answered only to the king. And the way Persia worked was that when Haman, you know, when he went through the streets of the city or when he came into the palace, everybody bowed down to Haman. Everybody had to bow down because that was just the deal. And you know how kiss-ups are. Haman loved that. He loved strutting and getting everybody's attention and all the bowing. Well, going back to Esther for a moment, Esther had a guardian. Before she became queen, she had a, a, a family member who was a guardian. It was a much older cousin. Esther's mom and dad had died. And so Mordecai, her cousin godly Jewish man, had, him, had adopted Esther, and Mordecai also worked at the palace. So in comes Mr. Haman, the kiss-up, the guy that wants everybody's attention, everybody's admiration and affection. Haman comes in, everybody else bows down to him. Not Mordecai. Mordecai's a Jewish guy. He's been taught from the beginning of life. You don't bow down and worship any man. And here comes Haman. Mordecai's not bowing. You know, he must have looked awfully tall in that sea of backsides. That's all I can say because everybody else is bowing down. And Mordecai is just standing there. So some of the guys who worked at the palace, they came to Mordecai and said, Mordecai, we realize you're, you know, you're not from here and you just don't really understand how things work around here in Persian protocol and stuff. When Haman comes by, you're supposed to bow down. And Mordecai said, I don't think I'm going to do that. So these same guys who talked to Mordecai, now they go to Haman and they say, Sir, we don't, know if you've, uh, we don't know if you've caught this or not, but have you noticed that when you come into the, to the palace that there's a guy here who doesn't bow down to you? He's kind of freaky and weird and different, and he, he worships differently. And, and, sir, just what do you plan to do about that? Well, let's read because we're going to get a real example of a vendetta here in Esther chapter 3, verse 5. Because the Bible says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with, what's the word? Rage. Okay, that happens to all of us. Somebody disrespects us, or we think they're disrespecting us. It makes us angry. But anger is meant to dissipate. It's meant to calm down, cool off. But what happens here? Look at this. Let's just read the rest of this text. Verse 6. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. Notice that he goes from, this has upset me and it's making me mad, to intentionality. i got to find a way to get even. Am I talking to anybody today? You know... Something someone did made you mad and angry, and you should have been able to let go of it, but now you can't let go of it, and it eats at you. And you wake up in the middle of the night, and you think about it, and then you like go across the line to think, what could I do to punish this person? What can I say? What can I do to get even with this? Well, we never even articulate that, do we? I mean, it's kind of like, it's sort of like below words. It's just that feeling of, I need to do something to let that person know that I am alive and I know what she did. I know what he did. I need to do something about that. When we start doing stuff like that, it's amazing how far we can sink. It's like the judge told Clint Eastwood, If you do that, you're going to wind up hanging on the rope that you have for somebody else. Well, let's pick up the story because, 
you know, Haman was so upset that it, he wasn't just going to kill Mordecai. He, he talked to the king and said, there's a group of people in our kingdom. They worship a different God. They got different ways than we do. We just need to whack them all. And he's saying, I'm going to take their money, put it in the treasury. If you'll give me permission to kill them all, they're called Jews. We're going to kill them. And the king said, great, that's fine. No problem. The king didn't think they were important people. And the word went out throughout the kingdom that all the Jewish people were going to die. And, and Mordecai, uh, excuse me, Haman and his guys, they got together, they rolled the dice to see what was the appropriate day to have the execution take place. And they settled on a day next, the following spring. And all the Jewish people were terrified. I mean, because they have no place to run. They have no, no country of their own. They have no elected representatives. I mean, they're just like waiting for their execution. Mordecai works at the palace, remember? Esther's adopted father. He goes to the palace and he finds Esther. And he says, don't think you're going to escape this because you're the queen. He said, you need to speak to the king about this. And who knows? What a, I'm not going to talk about this this weekend. Maybe sometime I'll come back and we'll have a whole weekend and just talk about this one thing. But, but Mordecai said to Esther, oh, how do you know that you weren't brought to the kingdom for just this moment? Guys, this is not my talk today. I, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about anger and vendetta and getting even. But I just want to say something. You were not made to earn a salary, pay the rent, eat food, and buy clothes. We have to do those things. But you weren't made for that. Every single one of us has a destiny. God brings us to life to make a difference to change the world. Most of all, to build the kingdom. Every one of us has those moments. And, and, and what Mordecai is saying to Esther is, look, how do you know that you were the most beautiful woman in Persia? How do you know that God didn't just elevate you to the spot for just this moment? But I should tell you, there was a little issue with that because it could sound like, well, yeah, well, duh. I mean, Esther should go tell the king, man, there's somebody trying to kill me. But the Persians had protocol that was a mile thick. And there was a law in Persia that if you went in to see the king, you know, if you showed up in the inner palace and you were in line to see the king and the king hadn't invited you, you could be whacked on the spot. I mean, the Persians were not big on drop-ins. And so Esther knew full well that if she walked in to see the king and if he hadn't asked her to come in, that she could lose her head over the matter. And after all, she knew real quickly what he had done or knew real thoroughly what had been done with Vashti. And so Esther told Mordecai, you have your people pray and fast for three days. I'm going to pray and fast for three days. I'm going to have my girls pray and fast. We're going to talk to God about this thing, and we're going to ask for help before we go into the palace to see the king. Now, let's just suspend the story for a moment there. Because there's a little piece of something that happened that you need to know about. Remember Mordecai, the Jewish cousin who works at the palace? I don't know what his job was, but he was just there in the palace. And one day he was listening outside the king's door, and a couple of the king's bodyguards had become angry at the king. See, anger is a big part of Esther, the book. They had heard these, these two bodyguards had become angry at the king, and they set up a plot to assassinate him, and Mordecai overheard that. And he told Esther about it. Esther sent it through channels. The king found out about it. They investigated it, found out the two guys really were plotting. And so it was just added into the annals, the journal of the kingdom of Persia, that Mordecai had uncovered this plot and the king's life had been saved but you guys know how records are they blew the dust off of it put it back on the shelf and that's kind of where it stayed anyway esther now praying and fasting going to go talk to the king the morning comes when she's to go talk to the king 
Can you just sort of like feel her, her nervousness? She's waiting in line in the inner, in the inner palace there. And all of a sudden, it's her turn to step before the king. And if the king doesn't want to see her, she's dead. But when the king sees his queen, man, he's glad to see her. He said, what can I do for you, baby? What, what do you want? I've been in Texas all week, so I'm kind of returned back to my way of talking. What can I do for you, baby? Now, Esther's smart. Instead of just like popping off the answer, she said, what I'd really like, what I'd really like is for you to come to dinner tonight. I, I got a big dinner I want to fix tonight. I want you to come, and I want you to bring Haman with you, just you and Haman. And the king is saying, wow, I wish all of my requests were like this. I'll be there tonight. So the king gets on the cell phone, pardon anachronism, calls Haman up and says, man, we're, we're in for a treat tonight. Queen Esther's invited us over for dinner. We're just going to have a good time. And Haman is thinking, I mean, this is great. I really am important. So night comes, they go to the palace, you know, to, to Esther's, Esther's place. They're having dinner. You know, it's really great. It's a great experience. And finally, after dinner, the king says to Esther, okay, now, baby, what, what is it that you would like for me to do? And she says, well, if I found favor in your sight, what I'd like is for you and Haman to come back tomorrow night. And I'll tell you what's on my mind then. Another banquet, another night. Sounds great. King says we're all over it. I don't know what Esther fixed that night, but it must have been spicy. Because the king can't sleep. You ever like, you know, indigestion? And the king's sitting up in his bed trying to like get control. And are you guys like this when you can't sleep at night? Do you like get something boring, like a boring book to read? Or like, you know, put an old movie on television in the hopes it'll put you to sleep? So the king, he, he asks for the most boring thing that he can possibly find in the hopes that it'll put him to sleep. And so he said, would somebody just bring the journal out here and just read journal entries to me? Guess where it fell open? Right to the spot where Mordecai had uncovered the plot. <laughs> and so he says, um, after he hears the story, what do we do for that guy? I mean, do we do something special for him? I mean, do we, like, pay him or do something nice for him because he saved my life? And the guy said, what? says here, we didn't do anything about it. The king said, we got to fix that. That is on his mind. Well, that's what's happening at the palace. Let's go over to Haman's house. Haman gets home from the banquet, and he is just totally jazzed because he feels so important. Ladies, you ever have your husband just kind of, like, brag to you about how big he is? Maybe he gets a raise or something at work. That's the male ego thing working. So Haman gets home. He, he brings his wife in, all of his kids, all the people who work for him. And his purpose is to tell them how important he is. Did you know I had dinner at the palace with just the king and the queen tonight? I'm really something. And he sort of regales them with all of his feats. Now, guys, I want to take a time out right now. And I want to read Esther 5, 12, and 13 to you. Because this will show you what revenge will do in your and my minds. Look at what's happened with Haman. He's mad because Mordecai won't bow to him. He should let it go. He should let it pass. But he hasn't let it go. He's determined he's going to kill Mordecai. He's going to kill all Mordecai's people. It's controlling him. Listen to his language. Haman added, verse 12, And that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she prepared for us. And she's invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. Then he added... But all this is worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. I'm talking to some of us here today. You had a bad relationship, maybe a bad marriage. Somebody just destroyed and wrecked and ruined your life and you've moved on because that's what should happen after anger. You've moved on and now you have a wonderful mate. You have a wonderful relationship. 
But if you have a vendetta going, you can't even enjoy that good relationship because all you can think about is how you were messed around last time. I know people who can't enjoy their kids. They just have a bad situation at work, and somebody's out to get them at work, and that's all they can think about. And they get home, and the kids want to play with them, but they can't play with the kids because they're just thinking about, how am I going to get even? How am I going to get that person back? And that's exactly what was happening with Haman. He was eating dinner with the king and queen, but he said, I can't enjoy it because all I can see is that Mordecai guy, the fact that he won't bow to me. Well, his family says, that should be no problem for you, you big man in the kingdom. Why don't you build this gallows 75 feet in the air and hang him high so that everybody in the kingdom can see how powerful you are and what you do to people who disrespect you. And Mordecai says, sounds good to me, man. He got the workers out that night. And they started building this 75-foot tall gallows. That's pretty serious. They're building this gallows to hang Mordecai. And that's the way the night closes. The king wakes up in the morning. What's on his mind? What was on his mind when he went to sleep last night? What can I do for this guy who saved my life? This Mordecai, this Jewish guy who overheard the plot, saved my life. I got to do something good for him. Haman, on the other hand, is now walking in the palace. He is now asking permission to kill Mordecai, because he's already got the gallows going up. He just needs the king to put his stamp on there so he can kill Mordecai. So they're like, do you see this happening? It's like you're seeing an accident about to, hap- about to happen, and, and the participants don't see it, but you and I are watching it. They're just like walking toward each other. In walks Haman. The king says, Haman, I've been wanting to talk to you. I've got something really big in the works here, and I need your advice. Um, there's a guy in the kingdom that I really want to show my favor to. He did something really good for me. He's very important to me. And I want everybody in the kingdom to know how important he is. And I want to do something really, really, really special for this guy. And Haman, narcissistic as he was, he's thinking, he's talking about me. (laughs) And so, you ever have a chance to write your own check? That's what Haman thinks he's doing, man. I mean, after all, the king wants to honor me, so I can ask for anything I want to. Since it's third person. And so Haman says, well, here's what I think ought to happen, sir. I think what you need to do is you like, need to go find one of your best robes. It's obviously one of your robes, the king's robes. Put it on this guy's shoulders. You know, uh, go out and get one of your horses with your king's seal in it and your best chariot. And put this guy in it and parade him all around town. And have one of the nobles holding the horse saying, this is the guy the king loves to honor. That's what I'd do if I were you, sir. And the king said, I'm all over it. That's a great idea. Haman, you're so smart. There's this guy in the kingdom named Mordecai. I, I, I want to honor him. And I love that little touch about having one of the nobles, like, lead the horse through town. Haman, why don't you do that? <laughs> do you ever have a really bad day? I mean, <laughs> it's like, I should have stayed in bed. Can we just turn back the clock? I mean, I, I hope God kept this on videotape because i got to see this. You're Haman. <clears throat> this is the guy the king wants. Uh, what's that, sir? This is the guy the king wants to honor. And all day long, you know, Haman drove the king's Rolls Royce around with Mordecai in the back seat. <laughs> so he goes home and he tells his family, this has got to be the worst day of my life. This guy, Mordecai, the king, the guy I've been wanting to hang, the king wants to honor him. And the family is saying, you know, Haman, it's between us. I don't think this is a real good time for you to hang Mordecai. You might ought to wait for a little while. And while that conversation is taking place, the king's servants are coming to take Haman to the next night of the banquet. Haman's thinking, well, at least one thing is working out right today. 
So he gets to the palace, and Esther serves dinner, and you know, after dinner is over, the king says, okay, baby, now what, what is it that you want? What, tell, tell us what's on your mind. And Esther says, sir, if it's all right with you, I'd like to live, and I'd like for my family to be able to live. There's a guy here in the kingdom that wants to kill me and kill my family. Well, the king's blood pressure is about 240 over 120 at that point. <laughs> because who in the kingdom would think to kill the queen and her people, and at this moment, Haman is knowing it's going to be a very bad day. <laughs> and Esther said, that guy right there, Haman, he's already got it fixed where I'm going to be killed and all my people. And the king loses it. And he's filled with rage. We know this guy's got an anger problem. So he's trying to calm down, and he walks out on the veranda to think about how he is going to whack Haman. Just what method? Haman is doing the only thing he can do. Esther the queen is lying on her, on her couch, and, and the only thing he can think of to do is to fall on the couch and beg and plead for mercy. But when the king turns around, he misunderstands what's going on. And all he sees is Haman dra- draped on the couch of his wife, and he says, will this man try to assault the queen right here in my house? And at that point, the servants know what to do. They get Haman, and they put a bag over his head. Because he's not dead. He's so dead. (laughs) And the king is just fuming. He's saying, how do we kill this guy? And they're saying, well, sir, we don't know if you know this or not, but last night he had this 75-foot-tall gallows built to hang Mordecai, and that's when the king said, hang him high. (laughs) And that's the story. Esther chapter 7, verse 10, listen to this. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided because anger is made to dissipate. I learned four things about having a vendetta for somebody else in that story. And let me give them to you quickly. Number one, vengeance has a way of absorbing all the room in our minds. There's something that's very toxic. There's something that's radioactive about vengeance. When we want to get even with somebody, it has a way of taking over our minds. Number two, vengeance will ruin good times. Look at what happened to Haman. He, got, he was elevated. He was an important guy. I mean, he had, a, he had everything he could ask for in life. And yet one guy disrespecting him, it took over his life. And he couldn't enjoy banquets. He couldn't enjoy time with his family. He couldn't enjoy anything because all he lived for was to get even. Number three, here's a big one. Vengeance opens the door for Satan to work in our lives. Listen to Ephesians 4.26. And don't sin by letting anger control you, the Bible says. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Anger is meant to dissipate. Look at verse 27. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Let me ask you a question. At your house, would you like create a parking space for Satan? Like reserve for Satan? No. Would you like to have a room? I mean, you're touring the house and you're saying, well, this is our, this is a master bedroom. This is our kid's room. This is the room we have for the devil here. <laughs> Couldn't do that, would we? No. But here's the deal. Listen to me, please. Any moment that you and I determine to get even with someone or to pay them back, it's like opening our heart door and saying, okay, devil, come on in and do your stuff. I know what some of you are thinking right now, but you're saying, well, wait a minute, Mark, I'm the victim here. Yeah, I know, I know. But when you, like, get even with somebody, 
It's like you just say, okay, Satan, come on in and screw my life up 12 different ways. Number four, when we determine to get even with somebody, it turns out the light in our souls. You know that sparkle, that joy, that life that we have, that we enjoy, when we really are enjoying life and we're having a good time and we enjoy getting up in the morning, you know that part of us that's, that's there? When we try to get even, even with people, it's like it just turns out all those lights. I got a few minutes here. Let, let's talk about it because some of you could say, well, Mark, you're not talking to me today. I'm on the other side of that. Somebody's trying to get even with me. Somebody's got a vendetta against me. Well, it's really important for us to think about what to do there because oftentimes there's a domino effect. Because if I'm out to get you and you know it, you'll try to be out to get me just to protect yourself. And so what do we do when somebody gets it in for us? What do we do when somebody is like out to destroy us, out to mess us up? You know, when somebody's trying to get your job, when somebody is trying to take your, you know, your guy or your gal or somebody is trying to like steal from you or somebody's trying to hurt you, how do you deal with that? You say, well, Mark, I got to protect myself. Well, if you take justice into your own hands, what do you do? You open the door to Satan and you turn off all the lights in your soul. So what do we do? You say, oh, do I just lie down and roll over? I mean, do I let them get off scot-free? One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Psalm 3. It's a real short psalm, and it's a great, it's a great story. And I know I've already developed one big, long story, so I can't tell you another one today. But let me just give you a little bit of background. King David is an old man now, and he's made some really serious blunders in his life. He's gotten involved with a woman that's not his wife and just done some dumb stuff that's got him in a lot of trouble. And now his chickens are coming home to roost, and one of his sons actually tries to steal the kingdom from him. So much so that actually David has to run for his life because his son is now taken over in Jerusalem as king. And on top of that, everybody who ever didn't like David, they're seizing the moment and seizing the opportunity to try to do him damage. And it's in that context that David wrote this psalm. So if any of you today are dealing with a situation where somebody's out to hurt you, listen to these words. Oh Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying God will never rescue him. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield around me. You're my glory. You're the one who holds my head high. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept, yet I woke up in safety, for the Lord was watching over me. I'm not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. What David did was what Esther did. When somebody's out to get you, you talk to God about it. And you ask God for help. And you don't try to take it in your own hands. And so I know what somebody's saying. Somebody's saying, well, Mark, that person will get off scot-free. Listen to David's prayer. I don't know how right he was, but this is just what he said. Verse 7, rescue me, my God. Slap all my enemies in the face. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. David is saying, God, I I mean, I'm just trusting you. You hit them in the mouth. You bust them. I'm going to sleep because you're my shield. See, a lot of times we think Christianity is for wimps because it's like, you know, Jesus told us to turn the other cheek. And it's like, wow, we just must let all these perpetrators get off scot-free. No, we don't. We just say, hey, it's not going to be my hand on you. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to find a way to love you. Because, see, the important thing is not what we do or don't do to our enemies. The important thing is that our windows stay clean. Listen to what God said. Let me read one more text to you and I'll be through. In Romans chapter 12, and I'm reading from the Amplified Version. The Bible says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
leave the way open for God's wrath. God's saying, I'll take care of it. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So what do we do? But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Do not let yourself be overcome by, by evil, but overcome master evil with good. You say, Mark, somebody has really messed me around. Okay, leave them to God. Well, what do I do? Do something good for them. <gasps> do something good for that fool? Yeah. God says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. Help him. Why? Because it will keep us right. It will keep us straight. It'll keep the lights on in our life. And who knows? I have seen this happen before. Sometimes God knows by being gracious to our enemies, they experience the same grace that we've experienced. And they change. And that person is not our enemy anymore. I have some very good friends who were once my enemies. If I'm talking to anybody who's on a vendetta this morning, you don't want to hang on your own rope. You don't want all the lights to go out. Lay down the sword today. Just talk to God and say, God, I don't know how to handle this, but you're God, and I'm going to leave it with you. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to ask you to take care of me. Do what you need to do with my enemies. And I'll tell you, if you do that, there will be a peace that will come over you, and you'll be able to sleep at night. You won't have to grit your teeth whenever you think about that person or see their car. You'll have peace, and the anger will melt. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we've learned today from your word. For those of us who are on a vendetta, Father, teach us gently what we need to hear. Lord, help some of us to be able to take that godlike step of walking across the line to actually be kind to people who've hurt us. And we'll give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Would you just still pray with me for another minute or so? Guys, let me tell you what helps me the most when I'm angry because somebody has hurt me. What helps me the most is to remember that I was once a sinner and still do wrong things. And God forgave me. Man, we sang Jesus prayed it all. I told Lance, I I just told Mary Alice the other day, I said, at my funeral, I think what we want to do is just get everybody seated, sing that song, Jesus prayed it all, and leave, because that's about the end of the story. See, your going to heaven is going to have everything to do with not what you've done, but what Jesus has done for you. The Bible says God loved you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross to pay for your sins. When the blood came out of his body, the way we just sang a few moments ago, the way God looked at it, all our sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for. But God is a gentleman. He never forces his forgiveness on anyone. Something that you must receive. You don't go to heaven because you're a good person, because none of us is. You don't go to heaven by joining a church. I love New Spring Church, but it can't get you out of Sedgwick County when you die. There's only one thing that can make you right with God, and that is receiving by faith the gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ. How do I do that? You ask. Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's why every weekend I pray a prayer, and I tell you, if you want to pray this with me, you can. It's a simple prayer. 
But if you mean it from the heart, it's the most important decision you make in life. I'm going to pray it slowly so that you can think about the lines. And if you mean it, God will hear your prayer. Here we go. Jesus, I know I've done wrong. I've done what the Bible calls sin. I know I can't save myself. But I believe Jesus died in my place. I believe he arose from the grave. Today, Jesus, I'm asking you to be my Savior. I'm asking you to be my King. I receive you. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, I know that was quick, but if you did that, you meant it from your heart. You just made the most important decision of your life. When you came in today, you have a worship folder. It's detachable. There's a card where you can respond to me, uh, and you can put your name and address on there, and you can detach the part that has the information on there, and just check the box that says that you pray with me to receive Christ, or if you have another decision that you made or one information, you can do the same thing. You can detach this part of the card. I have a gift I want to give you. This has got some DVDs and great information to help you know about the decision you just made, what to do next. It's free. It won't cost you anything. If you've got your name and address on this, if you drop it in the boxes by the back doors or at the bottom of the staircases, if you leave that, I'll mail this to you this week. If you don't like to wait, you don't have to. You can just bring the same card straight back through the middle where I'm pointing right through there. On the outside of that, there's guest services and New Spring Store, either one of those locations. You don't have to make a long speech. Just take your card and say, I pray with Mark today. They'll give this to you, and you can take it home with you today. Because at New Spring, what we care about more than anything else is we want you to know Jesus, and we want you to know that everything's all right between you and God. So uh, please, if you made that decision, please take that step today.